And this means that a doctor in training probably has to think through a lot of things a lot faster than they might have had to do at medical school or that they're well accustomed to, which a very senior colleague has had many years of experience of knowing when a patient has these symptoms, when a patient presents, these are things I must rule out before I go on. And I think that's where a clinical decision support system is best at hand. Hello and welcome back to the Medical Protection Podcast Headliner Series, where we keep you up to date with the latest in research and news. My name is Dr. Stephen Priestley, your host for this series on diagnostic error and safety. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with Professor Rakesh Patel from the UK and some of his team discussing a study looking at the effectiveness of an artificial intelligence-powered clinical decision support technology on medical students' clinical reasoning skills when using virtual patients. I'm absolutely delighted to say that this is one of a number of studies which has recently been funded by the Medical Protection Society Foundation, and it aligns with one of the foundation's areas of research focus, namely the impact of digital integration and technology on patient safety, outcomes and risk. I would like to welcome Professor Rakesh Patel and his team to our Headliners podcast. Rakesh is a Professor of Medical Education and Head of MBBS in the School of Medicine, Institute of Health Sciences Education, Queen Mary University of London. And he has an impressive medical education research background in a number of areas, including technology enhanced learning and virtual patient technologies and clinical reasoning, and is joined today by some members of his research team. So Rakesh, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Can I ask you to uh, say hello and introduce who you have with you today. Uh, thanks, Stephen. Uh, absolute delight and pleasure and honour to be here today. So I've got um, Sandra and Soam who will introduce themselves, if that's okay. Sure. Hi, um, I'm Sandra Montero. I am an associate professor uh, at McMaster University in the Department of Medicine. Uh, I'm also an education research scientist. My main research program being um, clinical reasoning. Um, over the past 10 years, that's been my focus. Um, I also have an interest in simulation and I'm currently the director of scholarship at our center for simulation-based learning. Thank you for um, inviting me, happy to be here. Hello, my name is So, and I'm an academic clinical fellow in neurosurgery. Uh, that essentially means I spend 75% of my time doing clinical work in neurosurgery and 25% of my time doing research, which is primarily in medical education and surgery. I've been working with Rakesh for the last three years on various different avenues, mainly on technology, enhanced learning, as well as how we can improve diversity in medical education. Uh, I'll be mainly involved in the operational side of this research funded by the MPS Foundation. Well, thank you very much. Rakesh, your study really caught my eye. Uh, I'm a member of the MPS Foundation Research Committee. Uh, and additionally, I teach clinical reasoning into our year two medical students at Griffith University here in Australia. So it was really only a matter of time before I got around to speaking to you on both those counts. So I wonder, can you tell us the background to the study and why you think that AI-powered clinical decision support might prove effective in teaching clinical reasoning to students? Um, yeah, that's thanks for the um, the question. So the first reason for pursuing this line of research uh, and talking more about clinical reasoning is because 
people would argue that making a diagnosis is arguably the most important professional skill of a healthcare professional. Um, and it's not, it's not really as easy, perhaps, as we would like it to think it is. Certainly, if we look at diagnostic error as something that is perhaps considered the outcome of when you don't make a diagnosis correctly, it usually happens around about 10 to 15% when you go looking for it. And certainly if you look at anti-mortem and post-mortem diagnoses, so the diagnosis that we thought the patient may have before we treated them or before they passed away and actually diagnosis confirmed at post-mortem, that discrepancy is in the order of 20 to 40%. So whilst we teach it for a long period of time and we assume our learners come out with it competent and being able to do it by the time they enter clinical practice, the data would say that we're not as good as we'd like to think we are as either teaching it or acquiring the skills. Now, the second part of your question is the why um, a clinical decision support technology may be useful for medical students is interesting because I think certainly um, over many, many years, whenever there's been a transformative technology, you generally tend to see an improvement in outcomes. And I think um, in the era of the smartphone and digital, um, the, the, the leverage that we now can get from technology and technology-enhanced learning is potentially transformative. AI, machine learning certainly really opens up that potential for medical students because post-pandemic, there is now a real need for getting up to date with the, the, the amount of material one needs to know, but also getting through the patient load that is now coming through our front doors. And now what you're seeing is a lot of medical students and increasing number of medical students in the clinical workplace, but perhaps less time available for senior clinicians to talk through their thinking, or at least help students make sense of these presentations. So that if you have a technology or accessibility to a technology that is supporting or scaffolding the way in which students think through problems, that potentially fills in that void that is is growing i would say but more importantly students are now not having to make inferences about what's going on in a clinician's head um, based on their observed behaviors they can actually use technologies to look these things up but also talk through um, or challenge clinicians as they make or they attempt to make explicit their reasoning after the event it's, it's, I agree with both of those premises. I wonder, can you describe how the study is going to work for us? Yes, I can. So there are a number of, of, of aspects to the technology, and it's probably worth talking through those. So uh, it's making clear that we have a shared understanding of what clinical reasoning is. And I think if you go out into the literature, there are many, many defini definitions. But Commonly, people would accept that, that it's referred to as the process of making a diagnosis, and it involves a number of components, which, which include generating a list of possible diagnoses that it may be, um, uh, working out 
um, or at least synthesizing a representation of the clinical problem, um, generating a number of diagnostic hypotheses as to what might be happening, um, uh, collecting data or information from the clinical presentation, either through a conversation or information um, summarized about the patient's clinical problem or using tests and, and the findings from tests. And, and then some, some other aspects that, that may be um, overlooked, but, but we all know uh, occur, and these are going through the process of justifying uh, diagnoses, ultimately picking which one uh, out of a list of, of differential these are, and proceeding on to management and treatment. And the, these are really important aspects that are now getting recognized in Bourne. So uh, the first design aspect is, is that we needed a virtual patient software that would allow us to um, create cases that would, uh, would simulate this. So again, there are a number of definitions for virtual patients, but the one we use um, was described by David Cook in 2010. So a virtual patient is a computer simulated real life clinical scenario that allowed learners to emulate the roles of healthcare professionals to obtain a history, conduct a physical exam, generate differentials and make therapeutic decisions. So again, that, that, that mirrors what I just described in terms of a definition of clinical reasoning. And then I think uh, um, it, on top of that, we've layered um, a clinical decision support technology that before we designed this platform hadn't been described in the wider literature and, and we felt was innovative because historically we have used technologies to try and replicate that process of creating a case. But I think that the, the novel aspect of this collaboration and partnership is that we've actually embedded a clinical decision support technology called Isabel into the virtual patient software so that at any point during that process of either collecting information, generating a hypothesis or list of differentials, or checking through and justifying your differential diagnosis, there is access to the medical student to the technology so they can get a second pair of eyes or check that, that might otherwise not be there to them prior to this technology being uh, produced. And then the final aspect once we uh, essentially checked the check the usability of that interface and the perceived usefulness of that technology with the students is to actually proceed and and investigate whether having such a technology as part of their learning leads to an improvement in either clinical reasoning processes so the quality of their hypothesis generation the quality of their problem representation um, all of the outcomes of clinical reasoning, i.e. improvement in the diagnostic accuracy or a reduction in diagnostic error. Well, thank you um, for that um, description. I, I understand you're targeting medical students for this. Um, is that because it's for a, a proof of concept? Because I imagine it's the junior doctors also and perhaps some senior doctors um, that would also benefit from this uh, type of approach, this sort of embedded AI at the at the bedside, so to speak. Is this, so I imagine, is this a proof of concept before potentially extending it to uh, junior doctors? Um, 
or I'm just wondering whether the clinical reasoning skills that might be improved by the use of this AI or this clinical decision support platform, do they translate into junior doctor years? Have we got any evidence that that works or do you need to continue on with that type of clinical reasoning education and training throughout the junior years to embed it as much as possible? I might actually invite Sandra to, to tell you a little bit more about her thoughts on, on novices and expert, and then perhaps even Stoham from his experience as a junior doctor, and, and then I might come in with some reflections on what they say, if, if that's helpful. Sounds terrific. So coming at this as a cognitive psychologist, my usual concern is, um, you know, how's the learner going to perceive this new intervention? Um, so this, I see this study as situated within um, several general recommendations that have been made just for years, but most uh, prominently um, more recently related to the rising, the concern over the rising rate of diagnostic errors, um, that we should be looking at interventions earlier in training, that we should be establishing the foundations for clinical reasoning skills. Um, and with the advent of AI technology, I think it's, um, you know, society's going to be looking to us to successfully integrate these kinds of tools uh, into healthcare. Um, and I think maybe also contextually, there's a lot of variation as to what a medical student looks like. Um, so for me at McMaster across Canada, they might be in their 20s, um, you know, Often they've done an undergraduate degree, they've done a master's degree before getting admitted into medical school. Um, I imagine in a context like that, when physicians encounter a medical student that they're aiming to train, they see a full-grown adult who looks uh, closer to a junior doctor, and they may even have um, expectations of their skills uh, and abilities. Um, uh, and, and so there can be some frustration around, you know, what kind of training uh, can a medical student uh, prepare on their own. What kind of knowledge can they can they gain and and supplement their training? Um, uh, you know, within the curriculum uh, at McMaster, we also have a three year medical program. So a lot of that learning has is just contracted into uh, you know a lot of self directed learning. The pressure is on the student to to fill in their gaps. Um, so a tool of this kind, uh, rather self directed, uh, accessible. Uh, computer-based uh, education platform that allows the students to um, experience a variety of virtual patient cases and expose themselves to different diseases and different ways that that symptoms present. And then I think going back to that, you know, you can't kill a virtual patient, um, take, take risks and practice uh, with a case uh, on their computer um, may, may go a long way to helping them build some of that confidence. Um, you know, in Europe, I, I suppose the age range for medical students is um, a little lower <laughs> in their starting point. Uh, so potentially even more valuable for them to use a tool like this to build that foundation, just even understanding the medical language. Um, you know, I find that in first year, um, you know, some of us kind of say, well, you know, they're just learning to tie their shoes. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's not, not meant as a criticism of, of the intelligence of medical students, but there's a complexity to just even, um, you know, the map of the school, you know, where, where are all their classrooms? Where's the anatomy lab? Um, what does it mean to behave professionally as a, as a medical student? Um, and, 
you know, and sometimes these students, uh, like I said, looking the, the age that they look are confused for experienced doctors. Um, so they, there can be a lot of uh, challenges to their self-perception. Um, it, all of that is to say that if we can provide them with, with, um, with an education platform where they can lead their learning, where they can explore cases that they feel they're weak on or that they're curious in, um, then I think there's value in understanding how to do that. Um, our, uh, a group of us at McMaster uh, looking at this sort of question of integrating AI in, into healthcare, we're concerned about the acceptability of an artificially intelligence-supported uh, clinical decision-making tool uh, and how that might be, or if that would be accepted by uh, practicing emergency medicine physicians. Um, so there's a recent paper that we we put out exploring that through a qualitative research um, methodology. We um, uh, we had on our team we had a medical resident who um, had the Isabel platform. So the that's the Isabel decision making support tool. Uh, it was uploaded on an iPad. Uh, the resident walked around in the emergency department following uh, physicians through their shift um, and occasionally offering them um, a different access to the differential that Isabel could put up, could pull up for them. Sorry. And our goal was just to understand, you know, do the emergency physicians ask for it? Do they wait for the resident to present it to them? And then once they do, how do they react? Um, I think you can uh, look up the paper and, and read the methods and results in more detail, but the synopsis was very much as I certainly expected. Uh, for experienced emergency physicians, they're reluctant to, you know, add in a new process to something that they're quite efficient at. Um, and in response to the differential that they saw on Isabel, a lot of them felt that um, a tool of that kind would be really useful to some of their colleagues who weren't as good at diagnosis as they were or for really junior doctors just entering the field, um, which, uh, yeah, I mean, let's face it, they've spent years mastering uh, the art of diagnosis in a very ambiguous setting. So um, that, was, uh, that was interesting, but something to keep in mind, uh, you know, when we read about these recommendations that we really should be involving technology, it's not as simple as putting something in the hands of a, a doctor in practice. Yeah, that's very interesting. You should say that. I, I imagine that similar sorts of things would happen in my department. I said I'm an emergency physician. Uh, I guess it's my interest in clinical reasoning and knowing a bit, quite a lot about diagnostic error and the rates of diagnostic error in emergency departments and other areas that actually gives me time to pause and think, just show me what, what are they thinking? What, what's that iPad thinking? Perhaps I've missed something. So, But um, that won't be the same with all my colleagues. Our transcripts didn't reveal a lot of that curiosity. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, I certainly introducing things like differential diagnosis generators at various points through the patient assessment, um, and in particular, if you could, if you could get information about or what really are the, the further clinical examination and or tests that would be really worthwhile in this particular patient with these characteristics. Um, and what things should we be thinking of and 
And if someone doesn't have all the signs of a pulmonary embolus, can they ever present like this? Uh, or the things, sometimes they do present like this. Perhaps you should still be thinking of it, even though it's not a typical presentation. That sort of support would be very useful. Um, I wonder if you you give a junior doctor's perspective and then I might bookend it with with what I think the medical students value. I think a lot of what I want to say has already been mentioned, but I think something important to remember is that whilst at medical school, you're really learning how to generate your differential diagnoses, pick up on interesting clinical signs, which I think this tool is really useful for. Then when you start your clinical journey, whilst that is definitely at the forefront of your job role, especially as an early career doctor, I think a lot of it's learning how to prioritize tasks, learning how to negotiate ward work with clinical work, negotiate the challenges of being on call versus being on ward, negotiating the fact that you may have more than one deteriorating patient once and how to manage the logistics of the situation. And I think a lot of this can be streamlined with clinical decision supports uh, settings, but not in the way that, okay, let's not forget to think about a PE. It's more about what are the key steps and what are the key differentials you definitely want to think about in this key area. So as you're dealing with the logistics of this scenario, so you can move on to the other acutely unwell patient, or you can move on to your next clinical patient, you're not essentially missing at that point in time. And this means that a doctor in training probably has to think through a lot of things a lot faster than they might have had to do at medical school or that they're well accustomed to, which a very senior colleague has had many years of experience of knowing when a patient has these symptoms, when a patient presents, these are things I must rule out before I go on. And I think that's where a clinical decision support system is best at hand. Now, I guess the question is, in a time-pressure environment, is there time for a junior doctor to use a clinical decision support system on the ground at that point in time? Or much like simulation teaching and much like the way that we prepare people, whether this is best done beforehand in an artificial scenario, a bit like how we train air pilots or how we train soldiers before they go into uh, a combat situation. And I think speaking from a surgical stance, there's been an increased uptake of making sure that the patient on the operating table isn't the first time we've ever done a certain technique whether, for example, it's a certain bleed or a certain operational approach. 3D printing, for example, has really revolutionized that with a lot of surgeons practicing the skills and 3D models of a specific patient before they go into that patient per se. So similarly, you can generate worst-case scenarios or worst-case situations happening on advanced systems like the Isabel Epiphany, Epiphany software. And I think that's where its real standout situation will be. It's about giving people the knowledge that they can handle the issues that come up in a real day-to-day -day work life and uh, being able to know that they can prioritize in a real work-life scenario so that once things really go badly in a clinical situation, they've at least learned what to do in an artificial safe scenario. And I think that's the real benefit of this for early career doctors. And if, if I may, Stephen, just to add on to that perspective from Soham, um, and Sandra can probably speak to this, better than I can but I think as a medical student you don't have those early knowledge schema you don't necessarily have those scripts in your mind as readily as an expert does so there's a lot of cognitive overload and again if we just remember the context in which medical students are now learning our hospitals are busier time is less um, patients are moving through the system a lot faster so 
conventional training and teaching, which perhaps was was based on a model of slower throughput where you had time to think and absorb and get feedback. That isn't necessarily the environment of training that I recognize anymore. And what these technologies allow you to do is not necessarily replace or, or interfere with learning nine to five. They open up a whole new world of learning five to nine. The net, what you can possibly do is before you get to the wards, before you um, come come on into the classroom, you now have a access to a whole library of structured cases that are written that map to a curriculum that covers the length and breadth of medicine, and that you can get feedback on each and every case. And if you can almost a bit like Soham said drill and go through the like routines and drill you can then practice and develop these illness scripts and schema into your mind they then become secure and into your long-term memory so that when you're on the ward they can be brought very easily to the front of your memory and applied to the clinical presentation in front of you what soam i think was describing was the reality of clinical practice when if you have to go through effortful thinking and you haven't necessarily learned or got the knowledge to cure in long-term memory, not only are you trying to grapple with what on earth is going on around you, you've got the busyness and messiness and the noise of the clinical workplace. And then as you as as he quite nicely described, as you get more senior, you then have a, a, a perceived lack of time. But what it is, it's just the absolute noise and nonsense that's that's going on around you that that makes you feel as if you can't use these things. That would be my observation, and certainly some of the feedback I've seen. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of um, a lot of sense from what you're all saying. It it, it makes me think back to when simulation um, became uh, became evident, and I had the privilege of spending time with David Garber at Stanford as he was developing or had developed the anesthesia crisis resource management program that was then adapted and adopted across many healthcare organizations and simulation training is now part and parcel of many different healthcare professionals training and I think there's no doubt that technical skills and by and non technical skills can be enhanced by participating in that sort of training. I guess it, I feel as if this is similar when you say there's a you know, there's a whole bank of different cases that you can practice on before you get to to, uh, to get near a patient. It's not dissimilar to the early promise of of simulation as well. In my mind, um, I'm interested if you think that's a reasonable parallel or a transformational point in the same way that simulation was. And what I've seen over the years, I guess, with simulation is, I think we do we can measure people's skills enhancements. The challenge really is to find, well, how does that impact on patient outcomes in a resuscitation? And in this way, how would this sort of work? How do you think we'll measure whether it improves diagnostic accuracy? Because there's so many other, it's multifactorial at times, isn't it? Yeah, uh, perhaps we can give you a couple of perspectives. Sandra, do you want to go first and then? Um, sure. Yeah, I think my first uh, thoughts goes, you know, again, coming at it from a cognitive psychology perspective, it's um, you know, what does simulation actually facilitate in terms of learning and what's going on in the brain? 
Um, the, the use of AI supported uh, learning platforms for me is actually an extension of any simulation-based education program. So, um, you know, I'd argue that, that people um, more easily go, their, their minds more easily go to a very expensive technical simulation in a theater uh, environment, you know, where there are mannequins and, and a lot of technology and the goal may be to perfect um, team-based uh, management or, or some procedural skill. Um, and uh, my current goal is to try to remind people that simulation is about, it's, it's really about imagining. It's about imagining you're in that, in that problem and getting familiar with what uh, a scenario looks like. What does it look like to do to take a history from a patient who's experiencing abdominal pain? Right, that's simulation. Even just talking about the scenario, talking about what uh, patients normally look like, uh, what the, what words they normally use. There aren't going to be the same words that are in the textbook. Um, and getting familiar with the translation of um, you know, just everyday uh, terminology to uh, that the words that, that so might be might have taught been taught in in classrooms and lectures. Um, so just even having a, a platform where they can experience that, um, I think is is incredibly useful. And uh, the value of just simulating, I think you referred to that already. Uh, you know, just simulating the process, the decision making, the different points of challenge that can arise. Um, in a quiet environment where you're not being distracted by other other patients, um, you know, can allow them to kind of absorb that. Um, and hopefully over time, it does become more automatic uh, and more familiar. Um, I think one thing that happened with the simulation-based education movement is there was a lot of distraction created by, you know, robots and, and expensive mannequins and technology and the the um, the ability to replicate reality or realism. Um, and I think there's still a lot to be gained from going back to the roots of just simulating the problem, understanding um, the what the patient brings to it and, and the, you know, what the physician's role is in that, in that encounter and, and just practicing the decision-making skills and uh, some of the data, data gathering and interpretation. So a couple of Point, Stephen, and, uh, and I'll come back to the point about outcomes, which I think are really, really important. But I think when I look back to the stimulation and what what we can learn from the way in which that technology came in, uh, are more around the cautionary tales and and not necessarily getting carried away with 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 perhaps hoping that this is going to deliver the panacea that we want it to. Uh, and there's a lot of lessons that, that should be learned. And, and I think one of the first ones is very much around making sure that, that we know the scope within which this technology fits. And I think it goes back to one of your earlier questions about, can this go into more senior doctors and so on and so forth? Well, clinical decision support, yes. And absolutely, I think Sandra's research and, and, and lots of research shows that these sorts of technologies and scaffolds, uh, you know, do produce direct uh, benefits for improving patient safety. I think in terms of the simulation technology or the virtual patient bit, I think that's where I think uh, the jury's out because um, going back to the definition of virtual patient I gave you earlier, it, it was a computer simulated real life scenario. And I think, you know, I think people are, are well 
within their right to ask, well, why do we need to when there are plenty of patients out there upon which we can go and practice on? And I think we have to be very careful about making sure that we know the level of the learner with, with which this technology is appropriate for. And I think that the earlier or certainly within a medical student context where they don't have uh, responsibility for delivering patient care, which is completely different. And we all know that actually, not just philosophically, but fundamentally, the minute you graduate and you are working in practice, it's a different uh, set of rules and a different pitch you're playing on and everything else. So I think I'm, I'm fairly confident that within a medical student context and possibly into the, the very, very early years of junior doctor training, possibly if the technology is adaptive and, and presents a realistic representation of a clinical-based task, this should be okay. But beyond that, I think trying to expect it to do everything and anything, I'm not so sure. And I think that's when I am interested in looking at the data. So I think what we should learn is whilst, and I'll use your words, you know, there was a lot of early promise around simulation, but I think we do this time around, whether it be AI or the, this virtual, pay, this technology or any technology, we need to be very clear about what metrics and measures we're going to use to investigate whether um, any disruption in the way in which we train is an improvement because uh, there will obviously be a change. There's no doubt we're putting something in, so we are certainly changing something, but that change may not be for the better. And I think it is really, really important that, that we go down to a definition of clinical reasoning and say, okay, does this technology make the problem representation or the way in which they synthesize what's going on better? Does it actually lead to an accuracy in diagnosis? Um, because whilst it may help with um, issues around helping students generate differentials, because by definition, that's what it's doing, um, does it necessarily help them discriminate and, and come down on the right one and, and not go down a rabbit hole? So I think that there's lots of sort of nuances within there that we're hoping that this research will start now shining a light on that, that, that where is it if this technology comes in? Which bit's working? Is it the virtual patient bit? Is it the, the um, clinical decision support bit? Is it both? Is it one? And for which type of learner? Because again, finally, we'll know that, that certain learners will, will not struggle with, with knowledge, but they might struggle with the way in which they reason through problems. Whereas other learners, it might be the other way around or, or a bit of everything. So I think that there is an, a wonderful opportunity now to start sort of shining a light on, on an area where before I would argue it was, well, if you got the diagnosis right, you can go on. And if you got it wrong, well, you can't. And, and, and not a lot of looking beyond that. Well, thank you very much, Rakesh and Sandra and so on. I'm gonna bring this to a close. It's been a, a really very interesting discussion. And um, I, I hope the listeners um, are as, as excited about the future with uh, clinical decision support um, in terms of clinical reasoning and then and improving our, diagnost our diagnostic capabilities, starting with students and then moving through. I think there is a, a lot of exciting things in the wings and I do wish you all the very best um, with the study and I'll be certainly tuned to hear what the results are and uh, as part of my role with the, the MPS Foundation. So it's been lovely to talk to you all. Thank you very much for your time 
and um, I'll close the uh, Headliners podcast on that note. And so we reach the end of today's podcast, Frontiers of Improving Clinical Reasoning. Having had a chance to reflect on that great discussion, what I really took away from Rakesh and his team was the pressing need for us to develop and then test new methods of improving the teaching of clinical reasoning skills. With a backdrop of unacceptable rates of diagnostic error and real barriers for our medical students being able to access teaching and feedback from senior clinicians in our hospitals, we have to work out how best we can improve skills in clinical reasoning for our medical students, skills that once developed can then be honed and further embedded in the early years of practice. The study that we discussed, harnessing artificial intelligence with clinical decision support and using self-directed computer-based learning offers significant promise to achieve such an outcome. And I really look forward to seeing the study results and further initiatives in this critical area of learning. I do hope that these insights about new frontiers in the teaching of clinical reasoning using technology have been interesting for you all and exciting for the future of diagnosis. For further information about today's podcast, and if you're a member of Medical Protection and would like a certificate for listening, please take a look in the podcast description. If you're interested in knowing more about the MPS Foundation and the opportunity to apply for research funding, we've put the link in the podcast description. By paying attention to the way we go about making diagnoses, we can begin to reduce the times our patients experience harm from an incorrect diagnosis. I've been your host, Stephen Priestley. Thank you for listening.